Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to pick up where our previous episode left off. We're talking about Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. So previously we talked about sort of the historical context of what was going on in the United States prior to the civil rights movement, leading up until the day that Rosa Parks famously refused to leave her seat on a Montgomery bus. She was arrested and um, she was going to be tried for breaking Montgomery's bus segregation laws on Monday, December 5th, 1955. That was just immediately following the weekend of when she had been arrested So the Women's Political Council called for a boycott of the buses on that day as a protest. They pretty much started making and distributing handbills announcing the boycott right at the same time as Rosa was arrested. And the handbill read, Another Negro woman has been arrested and thrown into jail because she refused to get up out of her seat on the bus and give it to a white person. This is the second time since the Claudette Colvin case that a Negro woman has been arrested for the same thing. This has to be stopped. Negroes have rights, too, for if Negroes did not ride the buses, they could not operate. Three-fourths of the riders are Negroes, yet we are arrested or have to stand over empty seats. If we do not do something to stop these arrests, they will continue. The next time, it may be you or your daughter or mother. This woman's case will come up Monday. We are, therefore, asking every Negro to stay off the buses Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. Don't ride the buses to work, to town, to school, or anywhere on Monday. You can afford to stay out of school for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk. But please, children and grown-ups, don't ride the bus at all on Monday. Please stay off all buses Monday. So in addition to these handbills, which were distributed, there was a lot of word of mouth uh, talk about the boycott. And ministers spoke to their congregations, encouraging the boycott in church on Sunday. And so on Monday, support for the boycott was huge. About 90% of black bus riders boycotted. That is a massively significant number when you consider that they were three quarters of the riders. Uh, people walked, they carpooled, they took cabs. Cab companies owned by African Americans actually charged passengers the same fare they would have paid for the bus. It was like 10 cents. Yeah. Uh, there are stories of people walking literally 20 miles that day rather than ride the bus. So at the trial, Rose's lawyers entered a not guilty plea, but they didn't really put forth an enormous defense against the charges. The whole point was that a guilty verdict could be appealed. So Rosa was found guilty and she was fined $10 plus $4 in court costs. That same day, a coalition of ministers and community leaders formed the Montgomery Improvement Association and elected Martin Luther King Jr. its president. Its mission was to advance the general status of Montgomery, to improve race relations, and to uplift the general tenor of the community. So that night, the Montgomery Improvement Association, also called the MIA, held a community meeting in order to decide whether to continue the boycott. Uh, Obviously, it had been a big show of support. uh, But the question was, if we keep doing this, can we get actual change to happen? Dr. King spoke, and afterward, Rosa was introduced to the crowd She didn't actually speak. They were, uh, she was like, should I say something? And the verdict was like, you have said a lot (laughs) by your actions, so it's fine. Um, In the end, the MIA made three demands to present to the city's leadership. One, 
courteous treatment on the buses. The second was first-come, first-served seating with whites in the front and blacks in the back. And three, hiring of black drivers for the black bus routes. This sounds like an exceptionally reasonable set of demands, but the city refused. Uh, and from this point, the MIA started organizing ways to keep the bus boycott going. Most African-Americans did not own cars, so a long-term boycott was really going to require some support. Uh, they also started working with attorneys to present demands to try to negotiate with city leaders and the bus company. So as the boycott stretched on, Rosa wound up losing her job. Her employer, which was the Montgomery Fair Department store, said that it no longer needed her work as a seamstress because it no longer had a tailor. So the tailor would fit garments to people and then she would sew based on what the tailor had done. So without a job, she focused extensively on the boycott. She became the dispatcher for a network of privately owned cars that carried about 30,000 black people to and from work every day. She also continued to work and support the boycott throughout its entire 13-month duration. She spoke, she worked, and she organized. Her involvement did not end with not giving up her seat. Yeah. Uh, life, as you can imagine, became harder for people who chose not to ride the bus as the boycott went on. People lost their jobs because they supported this uh, effort. And police harassed black people that were waiting for cabs. Cab drivers were also fined for carrying black passengers if they charged a reduced fare. Yeah, there was a pretty concerted effort to attempt to break the the boycott. There was also some targeting of white women who were driving their maids to and from work. A lot of like, we need to figure out how to get the white ladies to stop doing this because they're really hurting our cause. It's all kind of. Yeah, it was orchestrated. Eventually, a white attorney dug up an old law that prohibited boycotts. And a grand jury indicted many private citizens and community leaders who had been boycotting, including Dr. King, the leaders of the MIA, more than 20 ministers, and Rosa Parks. And as a side note, the famous picture of Rosa Parks being fingerprinted is, in fact, not from her initial arrest after being removed from the bus. It's from her arrest after this indictment. Right. That's You see it a lot of times with, like, completely not the right caption. Uh Things really started to become violent also. The homes of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Edie Nixon were bombed. Rosa also got threatening phone calls at her home. It became an increasingly dangerous situation for the people who were boycotting and supporting the boycott. And from the city's point of view, this boycott was having a very clear economic impact. The buses simply couldn't afford to run without the fares from black riders. And downtown businesses were really suffering from the absence of customers who had previously gotten there to shop via bus. But the city would not budge on the segregation policies, even though it was harming them. So the case that gradually made its way to the United States Supreme Court was called Browder versus Gale. Browder was Aurelia S. Browder, who was one of the women who had been mistreated on a Montgomery bus. Gale was Mayor William A. Gale. And then also part of the case were other plaintiffs and defendants, as as, as is often true. There were other women who had been arrested for breaking segregation laws on the plaintiff's side. And on the defendant's side were also the chief of police, the bus company, drivers, and other people. Rosa herself was not actually one of the plaintiffs of the Supreme Court because at this point she was also being prosecuted on these other charges and the attorneys did not want that to influence the proceedings. 
A U.S. District Court panel found in favor of the plaintiffs on June 5th, 1956. The city commissioners appealed, and the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the district court's decision on November 13th of 1956. City and state officials asked the Supreme Court to reconsider, and the Supreme Court rejected this plea on December 17th of 1956. On December 20th, a written order from the Supreme Court arrived in Montgomery requiring the buses to integrate. So that the boycott ended then. It had taken more than 13 months. So more than a year of people not riding the bus. Many of the boycott's leaders rode together on the first integrated bus. Rosa herself didn't because her mother wasn't feeling well and she wanted to stay home with her. But some reporters figured out where she lived, showed up and wanted a photo op, and drove her into town to get on and off buses so they could take pictures. So that is the source of the equally famous pictures of Rosa Parks riding on an integrated bus for the first time, staged on behalf of journalists. Journalists. As was the case with school integration following Brown versus Board of Education, there was heavy resistance to integrating the buses. There were shots fired at integrated buses, and there were church bombings that followed in its wake. So there was still an atmosphere of very real danger. Yes, and Rosa herself said that it, even though the buses had been integrated and they they got what they were after, it didn't really feel like a victory because she knew just how much work there was still left to do. And before we talk about some more of that work that went on, let's take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor. Uh, And now we'll get back to the events that unfolded following the Montgomery bus boycott. Yeah, so the the boycott became one of the keystones in the American civil rights movement. It's certainly uh, something we hear about all the time. Like we said in the beginning of the first episode of this topic, it's kind of like uh, the quick soundbite that you get, Rosa Parks' Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, it was widely covered in the national media, and it brought more attention to the struggle for equal rights. It was also a clear indication that it really was possible to change things. Uh, as we referenced at the end of our previous episode, before the bus boycott, a lot of civil rights activists genuinely felt like their work was not going to produce any kind of real change in their lifetimes. Even though people were working really hard, trying to organize at a, at a grassroots level, trying to take legal steps to to address laws that were unjust, it really seemed like a an uphill battle that was going to take a really, really long time to see any real change on, the success of the bus boycott inspired communities to organize and to protest and also sort of gave a template for for how much work it would take and how much organization and how many people uh, to have a unified action on something. And this is also when uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. started to really emerge as a civil rights leader, encouraging nonviolent protests and civil disobedience as a way to encourage social change. So this movement continued on for for many years. We we could have like a whole series of podcasts that was about the civil rights movement. Uh, there's an awesome book and TV series called Eyes on the Prize, which documents it uh, just astoundingly. Um, so many important and historic moments that, that went on and, and culminated in a lot of federal legislation that made a lot of what was going on illegal. So while a lot of these things do still happen today, a lot of these things being things that are that are obviously discriminatory or racist. Um, they are not legal and encouraged the way that they were before the civil rights movement happened. Right. 
Rosa's own autobiography, which is sort of meant for younger readers, it's called Rosa Parks, My Story, doesn't really say much about her life after the boycott. After it ended, though, she and Parks couldn't find work because of their involvement with the boycott and the movement. They were also accused of being communists because of their civil rights work and their associations with some civil rights organizations that did have some communist leanings. And they were harassed a lot. Uh, Parks became increasingly worried about Rosa's safety. So eight months after this whole event ended, they moved to Detroit, where Rosa's brother had also moved after World War II. And even there, they had some serious economic troubles because people did not want to hire Rosa. She continued to go to meetings and work with civil rights organizations, but those organizations would not offer her paying work. Yeah, they were actually like national news stories. Yeah, she was a little too high profile for people to take a risk on her. Yeah, and and there were... You know, there were news stories that covered this story that was like, this civil rights heroine cannot find a job. Yeah. Um, for a while, she moved to Hampton, Virginia, where she had found a job running this sort of combination dorm slash guest facility on the campus of Hampton Institute, which was a black college. But she felt really lonely and isolated there. She tried really hard to find work for Parks so that he could come and be with her and wasn't able to. She eventually moved back to Detroit, and it took about five years for her to find steady, paying work. And in Detroit, she and Parks continued to be harassed because of their activism. And even though interviewers continued to ask her about the progress of civil rights in the South, she became acutely aware of how many of the same problems still existed in the North. Yeah, well... The South is often pointed to as, like, the hotbed of all of it, but it really was all over the country. Yeah, a lot of, like, registering to vote uh, was just a crazily convoluted, deliberately demeaning process for African Americans in the South. Uh, and and in the in the North, there were also many steps that were taken to deliberately disenfranchise African American people. It just was not as obvious. Um, some of the social things that we talked about earlier in the in the Introduction to the previous episode when we talked about sort of the social context and we talked about uh, businesses that would hire only African-Americans for service positions. A lot of that was like fancy hotels in the north who were hoping to attract southern business people and they would maintain this veneer of like a romanticized slavery version by having an all black waitstaff. It, it was not just a southern thing. No. Uh, in 1964. A black candidate named John Conyers Jr. ran for a seat in the House of Representatives, and Rosa had been following his campaign. He had been, before he got into politics, a civil rights lawyer. Rosa endorsed his candidacy, and he was eventually elected. And in 1965, he hired her for a position in his Detroit office, and she continued to work for him until she retired. This was a secretarial role, uh, because she was a woman, and this was the 60s, that was basically... The job. Limited options. Yeah, like the job that a a middle class woman could do was basically secretary. But it definitely gave her the chance to continue with her activism throughout Detroit and really the the rest of the country. She continued to travel and speak and work for equality for the rest of her life. There are photographs of her at anti-apartheid rallies as she got into her later years. This was really a lifelong activism uh, for equal rights for 
all people. Yeah, it was really her purpose. I mean, her personal mission. Yes. Uh, and Rosa Parks died at home on October 24th of 2005. Representative Conyers introduced a resolution for her to lie in honor at the Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. She was the first woman and the second African-American to be given this honor. And I love her. Mm-hmm. I think she's amazing. She is. It's, it's like uh, the moment on the bus was an amazing moment. But to reduce her to this moment, like, really. It ignores a lot of other amazing it stuff. It ignores so much amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, there is a great book that I, I read, uh, was I was researching this podcast. It's by, uh, Jean Theo Harris and it's called The Rebellious Life of Miss Rosa Parks. And it's this, like, it's this whole annotated volume that's about all this other work that she did for so long. Um, and that, you know, even breaking this into two parts, there are lots of things that we did not talk about that she did and that she accomplished uh, and that she represented on behalf of the civil rights movement and women, which in a lot of ways tended to be a male dominated movement. So while we fangirl out on Rosa Parks, do you also have some listener mail for us? I do. And this is from Jessica and Jessica. This is actually I have. Uh, the, like the file of stuff that I mean to read, and then sometimes I miss something, and it, it's much oh, yeah. later. So this is from like the Wayback Machine of my inbox. This is from Jessica, who wrote to us at the beginning of December. Um, she says, first of all, I absolutely love the podcast. I listen on my daily commute from Boston, where I live, to Fall River, where I work. Yes, the same Fall River where Lizzie Borden was acquitted of axing her parents to death. She has a little asterisk here, and then down at the bottom it says... The general consensus among the people of Fall River is that she definitely did it. Cracks me up. Uh, (laughs) I work in Fall River as a public defender, representing low-income individuals who have been charged with crimes. The house where Ms. Borden's alleged murders took place is actually right behind our new courthouse. Spooky. It is a bed and breakfast now. You can sleep in the very room where Abby Borden was hacked to death, if that's something you're into. I don't know where I fall on that issue. Nor me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I recently listened to the Boston Massacre podcast, which was awesome. I'm really glad you took the time to talk about John Adams. His defense of the soldiers is something that I and other public defenders use to explain to others why we do what we do. Everyone deserves to have their rights protected, whether it's British soldiers or everyday people who can't afford representation. So the next time I'm in court, I'll be thinking about John Adams and trying to forget the fact that the spooky Lizzie Borden house is right next to me. Thanks for the great podcasts, Jessica. <laughs> I kind of love that there's a spooky Lizzie Borden house right next to the courthouse. Me too. Or behind I, it, I guess. I, so I always forget that so much stuff in New England is an easy commuting distance from so much other stuff in New England. <laughs> the fact that somebody commutes from Boston to Fall River it kind of delights me. Uh, and the fact that uh, people are using the, the story of John Adams and the Boston Massacre to explain the role of public defender to people. Yeah. I think that is awesome. If you would like to write to us, we are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can come to our website and put the word civil rights into the search bar, you will find a timeline of civil rights. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.